Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. Dog days of summer are here, but markets are firing on all cylinders. So before you check out for some much-needed rest and relaxation, here are three things to take with you. One, margin pressure. The producer price index confirmed this week what we all know. Strong demand and supply chain bottlenecks are causing price pressure that figures to hit corporate margins. We think through this story and point out what's relevant to creditors. Two, ESG favorable bonds are on track to cross $1 trillion in issuance this year. Regardless of your politics, you'll want to keep track of where this is headed. And three, big bank earnings are out, as is their color on the credit environment. I'm not sure it's ever been more positive. But what's down the road? We'll explore. All right, let's get started. The PPI accelerated from 0.8% in May to 1% in June, well above the consensus estimate of 0.6%. The core came in a bit less incendiary, slowing from 0.7% to a still high 0.5%. This continues the now painfully familiar narrative that the economy is running hot, which will catalyze the Fed into a series of hawkish, growth-killing acts. Transitory be damned. Now, drama aside, it's got us a thinking about something we highlighted back in the cold, dark days of Q1. Corporate margins are at risk as demand pressures supply in the reopening. We have heard a growing chorus over the course of the first half lamenting supply chain and labor market disruptions, which figures to show up in margin numbers, depending, of course, on the extent to which producers can pass along those added costs to consumers. With Q2 earnings, we ought to have a pretty good sense as to how successful those efforts have been. Overall, margins for the S&P 500 in Q2 are forecast to drop a little over a point on a sequential basis from 13.5% in Q1 to 12.4% in Q2. That's up significantly, as you would expect, over Q2 a year ago's 9%, but also up a touch over 2019's Q2, which came in at 12.2%. For the full year 2021, margins are expected to come in at 12.8%, which compares to 11.9% realized in 2019. So at least it is analysts' expectation that much of this producer price pressure will be passed along to consumers. This outlook makes sense when you take into account the substantially strengthened balance sheets of consumers. Courtesy of the federal government's massive relief and support provided during the pandemic period. With record high net worth and still well above average savings, U.S. consumers are in a position to pay up for things and are likely to be fairly insensitive to price increases. All that is likely to correct over time as the great deceleration unfolds. But for now, we expect much of rising costs to producers to be passed along to consumers over the near term. So what's actually happening at the firm level? Well, we've had a few early Q2 earnings reports to comb through, including consumer staple PepsiCo, as well as industrial manufacturer Fastenal. At Pepsi, the CEO acknowledged that inflation was, quote, at the higher end of the company's expectations and contributed to a decline in gross margin during the quarter, from 55.5% in Q2 2019 to 53.7% in the latest quarter. The CEO commented, 
Is there somewhat more inflation out there? There is. Are we going to be pricing to deal with it? We certainly are, he added. Colleagues weighed in saying, quote, we feel quite comfortable that through a combination of net revenue management initiatives and increased productivity, we can navigate this, unquote. And for what it's worth, Pepsi raised its earnings growth forecast for the year from high single digits to 11%. Over at Fastenal, the company reported EPS of 42 cents, topping the estimate by a penny. A gross margin expanded by 200 basis points to 46.5%, although that is more attributable to mix shift. With regarding to rising costs, management said, and I quote, there's a ton of inflation going on, unquote. But they were quick to add that the firm has been able to raise prices to largely match cost increases. Still, and somewhat ominously, they added that maintaining price-cost parity will be a bigger challenge in the third quarter of 2020. So this story is not fully played out yet. The CEO was quick to point out that he is able to offset some of those costs with incorporating technological advances in places like the travel line item, which he thinks he can reduce by 30 to 40% from pre-COVID levels and a surge in efficient online sales. So there's a powerful offset here, technological improvement for many firms to the rising cost story. And remember, we believe a lot of those costs are transitory, while the benefit of technological improvement is lasting. It's also worth considering that from a credit standpoint, a 100 basis point move in margin is not likely to be all that material. This is a topic where bondholder interests are not quite as sensitive as stockholder ones, in our opinion, where margin pressure could be the difference between an earnings beat and a miss, and where the narrative of margin compression gets blown up into a lasting taint. From a creditor's perspective, especially when the yield desperate market looks for spread widening as an opportunity to buy, the margin story just isn't showing up in spreads. All right, on to our second thing, the power of ESG. By now, you've probably heard all you want to hear about ESG. As we've said before, we cannot recall a similar phenomena driving investment strategies more powerfully than ESG. We came upon a Bloomberg piece this week forecasting global sustainable bond sales this year to cross $1 trillion, a level that is more than double that of a year ago and close to 10 times that which was done five years ago. We love the color from J.P. Morgan Chase's head of ESG Capital Markets, who said that conversations with issuing clients have gone from, why should I issue a sustainable bond, to why aren't you? She added that an issuer's absence from this market says something now. That last little bit speaks volumes about the power of ESG. Regardless of your politics or scientific beliefs, it is in your interest, whether you are a banker, an issuer, or an investor, to take into account the buying interest in ESG-favorable assets. This is a market that's hard to push back on. The seminal moment in the U.S., of course, was BlackRock CEO Larry Fink's commitment to ESG and sustainability as a key investment consideration back in 2017. And since then, the floodgates have opened, and in Mr. Fink's words, the reallocation of capital around ESG accelerated even faster than I anticipated. Citigroup's head of public sector DCM points out that today, every issuer is going to want to be able to demonstrate that they have a sustainable business model in order to draw interest from surging ESG funds or simply investment managers 
committed to ESG preferences. And on its earnings call this week, J.P. Morgan Chase talked about the strategy of acquiring asset management platforms that are well positioned on the ESG front as a strategic priority. Now, the fascinating thing to us is that regardless of where you sit on any particular ESG factor, it can be in your interest to support that ESG favorable issuer simply on the basis that you believe the asset will outperform due to the ESG halo. Now, if something is cheap enough, unfavorable ESG assets might prove to be cheaper, but for the most part, don't fight the tape. ESG assets are drawing plenty of investor interest regardless of an investor's ESG values. All right, on to our third thing. The latest read on credit markets courtesy of big bank earnings. We always make it a point to listen in to big bank earnings conference calls because of the color management's given the economy, both in terms of individuals and businesses, as well as the overall state of credit, most notably the progression of loan losses. The latest go-around took place this week, and overall results reflect the extraordinary environment we are in the midst of, one where stimulus equal to 30% of GDP is washing all over the economy. That has driven record-setting levels of household net worth, businesses having the high-class problem of struggling to meet strong demand, and best-in-a-generation financial market conditions. It's good to be a bank. To start, JPM set the stage by disclosing that its central case from an economic perspective is for what it called a very robust recovery. For context, management was asked to compare and contrast where we are today versus where we were immediately following the GFC. Jamie Dimon opined that they are completely different fundamentally. Post the GFC, the world was in a massive deleveraging mode as consumers were overleveraged and companies were overleveraged. Today, the consumer pump is primed, in his words. Their house value is up, their stock value is up, their incomes are up, their savings are up, and their confidence is up. Businesses, he added, are also in good shape. They're not over-leveraged today. While a lot of charts show that corporate debt is higher than it was, so is corporate cash, he points out. And if you look at the middle market loan losses at the bank, it's almost zero. In addition, he mentioned that a lot of fiscal policy support hasn't been spent yet, and there's a lot more that's going to be passed. And finally, he added that Europe is probably just six months behind the U.S. He went on to make the point that while loan losses in the GFC had crippled bank balance sheets and in turn their ability and willingness to lend, loan losses today are remarkably low. JPM net charge-offs were half of last year's second quarter number and continue to trend near historical lows. Management referred to the low level as exceptional. Over at B of A, the loss experience is even more dramatic. Net charge-offs fell to a 25-year low as a percentage of loans. And looking forward, it's comforting to know that most early-stage delinquency categories are at or near historical lows. Overall, on the asset quality front, B of A commented that there is nothing but good news to report. Wow. This is what you get with massive fiscal and monetary accommodation. In the pile-on, Spending numbers in the U.S. are incredibly strong, especially when considering that meaningful segments of the economy were all but shut for significant parts of the past year. At JPM, combined debit and credit spend was up 45% year-on-year, 
and perhaps more importantly, up 22% versus the more normal pre-COVID second quarter of 2019. Importantly, travel and entertainment has really turned the corner, in management's words, with spend flat versus the second quarter of 2019. And over at B of A, consumer spending was not only much higher than the same periods in 2020, which you would expect, but is notably also 22% higher than the first half of 2019. So to sum up, little in the way of pandemic-inflicted wounds for the banks and plenty of optimism for the future. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, margin pressure. The producer price index confirmed this week what we all know. Strong demand and supply chain bottlenecks are causing price pressure that figures to hit corporate margins. We think this is largely a story shareholders have to worry about. Two, ESG favorable bonds are on track to cross $1 trillion in issuance this year. The momentum and the change that goes with it palpable. And three, big bank earnings are out, as is their color on the credit environment. Their barely contained optimism reflects an environment that soon will fade. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest rating reports and research. See you next week.